Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me at Dazzler AOA on Twitter. That's Dazzler like in the Age of Apocalypse, not in the Heroes Are Born universe. Ooh. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And as always, you can find the show at X'sForPodcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter, where you can find all of your favorite modern Marvels, chrono-skimmed classics, and more as the show continues to evolve its evolution and one of those places we are evolving is i guess to a year ago in time but also to a world that never existed and as part of our continuing coverage of everything jason aaron's avengers in preparation for the assemblage that will break them apart we are taking a look at all of the facets of his run including the return to heroes reborn as a franchise entity but man is this universe one of a kind now we've already taken taking a look at Heroes Reborn number one. But up today, we have an incredible list of issues, and the credits were given previously for these issues. But we're going to be taking a look at Heroes Reborn 2 through 4, Hyperion and the Imperial Guard, Peter Parker, the Amazing Shutterbug, Magneto and the Mutant Force, which, okay, just that's where I'm starting right siege society and young squadron so we started this whole thing with a talk about general au but i think i want to kind of direct a question to the two of you just to get us started and that's when you think the marvel universe without the avengers don't you just think like spider-man and the (laughs) (laughs) x-men i was like didn't we already have that during the original heroes reborn event when it was just spider-man and the (laughs) x-men yeah like i don't like for me this is not what if the avengers didn't exist this is what if the Squadron Supreme were given some sort of Avengers-like fantasy where they get to be hero for a day? How do you guys feel about the inherent build of the Heroes Reborn universe and what that does to like understanding this story? I think like as a longtime comics fan, when you're like, oh, okay, cool, but if the Avengers didn't exist, the other heroes would lift it up. Yes, you have to have the Mephisto of it all driving here the Squadron Supreme as the main force in the marvel universe without the avengers to make this happen and like it's an interesting journey the question is always what is the point of this au what are what are we trying to pull out of this and this one has a very specific point and it is the entire concept is a plot beat of the larger avenger story that jason aaron is telling and yet it doesn't really want to embrace that. It wants to start from this idea of like, oh, there's no Avengers, so just things are different. And like you can kind of guess what the what the big variable is that's changed here, but like we're not gonna own up to it in very broad strokes. We're gonna try and like be a little bit subtle, but it's really not subtle. And so I think one of the things that I just wish they had maybe taken a different tack on is just like this is clearly part of this story that's being told primarily in Avengers, in which Mephisto is 
making big moves and taking big swings. And we have seen that that's happening in the background while the Avengers are doing a lot of different things. And we have seen that Squadron Supreme has been a part of that. Phil Coulson has been a part of that. So when they show up here, it's not really a surprise to connect the dots. And yet the story is still trying to play it just coy enough that it makes me roll my eyes more than I would like to. I think I could get a little more into this if it was just saying like, okay, we've clearly gotten to the point in this story where we need to do a bigger deep dive on Squadron Supreme. You can see how we got here. You know, I oftentimes have this mental image of Mephisto standing in someone's library and giggling maniacally as he switches the order of two volumes on some (laughs) random shelf somewhere and then hopping up and down like he's got goat legs and then disappearing into the night. And when the person six years later goes, oh, those two are out of order and switches them back hell just bursts into applause for him and everybody is so excited right this is a little bit more like Mephisto rings your doorbell you open and he smacks you with a sack full of quarters this is a little bit more direct of a prank and by now prank- I'm just imagining Mephisto like editing Wikipedia pages to say like hey you know what if you're going to get into Twin Peaks watch Firewalk with me first it won't ruin anything exactly that's that's what's happening no enterprise is the best star trek so (laughs) it's it's definitely some weird moves on mephisto's part who really again like we're always like mephisto's eating a marriage how naughty and out of character he's always doing little things like i feel like one of the things about mephisto is he's always like oh don't you worry my time's coming and everyone's always (laughs) like oh is it him from powerpuff girls and mephisto's like with a perm yes and like (laughs) It's it's a thing. Like so when Mephisto does something and he's like, now Fisto, it's like always a little much. And it's just how balls to the wall. Like I feel like Mephisto sat down and took out a, an empty book and was like, mm all right spider-man he's a character in this all right uh what parts do i like sticks to things had a living costume dead girl okay now (laughs) who am i gonna put this on the smart one i'm gonna put this on the smart one he's kind of a batman but we'll make him a little bit more of a spider bat okay who's next and like oh my goodness because like the sort of lifting tropes and putting them on people it turns out if you combine tony stark and thor not even making him a woman could save him because zarda's the worst at being the best or the best at being the worst i don't know but hell is coming how do you guys feel about like some of the ways that the marvel universe got appropriated Okay, first off, why is your Mephisto voice uh, my Mr. Sinister voice? Because like now I'm like, oh, they're the same person. Oh, like, no, like, I would absolutely watch them hosting men's on film. Oh my god. <laughs> Two yes. metal pointy teeth up. Ooh, look at the capes on display here. Oh my. I just imagine they have like a Cannibal uh, watch club. Not enough eating people this week. My original question was, how do you feel about the fact that like Mephisto was sort of like, I'm going to play D&D with the Marvel heroes and I'm going to trope out parts of them and stick them onto people randomly. You know, it felt very in line. I mean, having just gone through and read the Avengers run up until now, it just uh, it just seems like that's something Jason Aaron really loves to do. So he's like, ooh, I'm going to be Mephisto. It's really ridiculous, some of the combos that come together. But, like, I I still can't get over Dr. Doom or not. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it, but it's so crazy. And like even Wanda and Pietro having merged powers, it's so like it's also crazy that I can't see it as anything more than Jason Heron putting himself in the book doing it because he did it with the Avengers arc where they go to space and we have Captain America and Corsair and Binary and her Binary and Brutor. But it's pretty funny just the idea that originally Squadron Supreme are just supposed to be the Justice League in the Marvel Universe. Now we are taking that and inserting it into the genesis of the Marvel Universe such that we now imagine what the Marvel Universe would be like if the Justice League had been there from the get-go. But then on top of that, if we already knew in advance what all of the important tropes of the Marvel Universe would be, and so we could go back to the beginning and graft them on to different people and different things. It's a big old sloppy mess and in a really fun way, in a very funny way. I had a lot of fun with this. I think I had more fun with this in the reread that I did after we talked about AUs a bunch, because I think going into it the first time around, I just kind of was annoyed. I think I was annoyed that like I didn't understand why this wasn't a summer crossover, what the point of this was, why they didn't do some of the cool things that we talked about. But then after we talked about it, I sort of started to just once I'd gotten all my complaints out, I think rereading it, I spent a lot of time just taking it all at face value. And yeah, you know, the idea that on top of playing with a new core central group of characters that you would take ideas that are necessary to the Marvel Universe and graft them on to different characters was actually pretty, pretty hilarious. And, you know, I think some of that is best exemplified even in the young squadron and the sidekicks that we get reflecting what's important about the characters to whom they are sidekicks to. It just... It's very clear that Aaron has his own canon about what is really central to the Marvel Universe. And I appreciate that while he can kind of juggle both the really out there space concepts and the really down to earth stuff, his general conception of the Marvel Universe tends to be pretty even keeled, which I think lets him do do more narrative like shakeups that are still easy to follow. The, I, the problem I have with his view of the Marvel Universe, though, is like just the central idea that Captain America is such a central important figure to it. I mean, I guess like, yes, I loved Avengers growing up, but as an X-Men fan, I was like, well, you know, Captain America is he really as important as like even a Reed Richards or a Charles Xavier like if you're thinking about in those terms okay I'm about to do something that's going to absolutely mean that we get through maybe issue two if we're lucky oh fuck me in the dick so here's the thing <laughs> And I've been thinking a lot about this because to affect reality, right? There's a reason that, you know, if you're ever playing Fantasy Mutant League, when someone's like, I draft Wanda, everybody's like, you're actually out of the game. We completely forgot your, uh, the rules preclude you by. It's because reality warpers like Wanda and Jamie, it's really difficult to allow for their existence. And now you can never take them out once they're in there because it's hard to lower the stakes in a way that doesn't disappoint people. But when I think about how for 
this spell to have worked. And I know Mephisto is Satan. I know, you know, me Fisto, you Fisto, everybody Fisto. But like he is at the same time working against other absurdly potent magics. We know that there's spells in place so that when Doctor Strange dies, the world doesn't. We know that there's uh, psychic traps in place so that if something happens to the universe, uh, you know, the Shadow King isn't let out of some prison somewhere, you know, you know, not Shadow King in particular, obviously, but just like as a random example. We know that there are so many things that go into the suspension of the universe. How is it that Mephisto can outwork the Phoenix when the Phoenix is life incarnate? And then if the Phoenix is affected, then certain other things that led to this, like there's such a chain reaction. I think one of the things that has to be central to a reality reworking is it's almost like you accept that it's a patch. This isn't a new reality. It's they've temporarily grafted another reality onto this one. And in that way, I think Mephisto's reworking of the universe is really clever. I agree with you. You know, oh, if you just take out Cap, that doesn't really change everything. I don't think just taking out Cap changes everything because I think Mephisto's reworking seems to have fundamentally changed things. I don't know that it directly affects the Avengers 1 million BC, but there's a fluidity, a connectedness, a sort of full circle that is now broken. So I don't know if it's that Cap's removal does it. I think it's like it's like you're trying to reconnect wires so that the power flows no matter what. But the places he's choosing to point in the wiring are Cap, are the Avengers. But really, like one of my big thoughts is you're telling me Apocalypse is just fine with this ponytailed, permed out bitch taking over the universe? It's so hard to think of it as just taking a small swath, though, because like we see we see in issue what is it issue two like Hyperion just like destroy the fuck out of Galactus and you know then we've got Hyperion and Shi'ar Empire and you know the Shi'ar are like hey cool let's hang out and then they all get infected by Brood so like that like changes like geopolitical realities across the universe so it's hard to see that like Apocalypse wouldn't try to get involved and like what about the Shi'ar things that were always in motion that we find out we're going to come due in 2014 no matter what like there's all of this stuff that's always like oh we've been waiting for 36 years to attack oh well 36 years comes and goes no matter what my friend whether Mephisto's in charge or not and Mephisto in his great Satanism I guess (laughs) 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 you know Mephisto as you know great king devil man is out there just not aware of all of this he's powerful but he's not omnipotent or he'd never be beaten so there is something to be said for like cool and gath's bucket of blood plan was still gonna happen I mean, it does start to take us into a territory where we would never really be satisfied otherwise, because there just is so much continuity to account for. But I think we as readers were very forgiving of continuity holes in alternate realities when it came to like Age of Apocalypse and even House of M. And then, you know, they did something very smart with Age of X and kept it a really small pocket alternate universe so that you didn't have to worry about all that stuff. And it broke apart really quickly because it couldn't really last more than a week before the hole started being poked in it. The problem with something like Heroes Reborn in this moment when Jason Aaron does 
does nothing but insane undertakings that last like years before everything pays off and they account for so much is I kind of at this point, the next time they want to do like a really big universe spanning alternate universe, I do maybe need them to account for every little detail if they really want me as a reader to buy into it. And that's yet another reason why this kind of feels like seven lost issues of the Avengers run, plus some really cool tie ins rather than like having all of the structure of a summer event with none of the backing it's just a really odd little situation that's going on with this because when i compare it to an age of khonshu or an enter the phoenix it feels like the same thing with different main characters yeah yeah and a lot of extra books oh yeah so many the extra books kind of bum me out and i think i can say my feelings on two-thirds of them by taking a step back and pointing and i still have you know a lot of things to say uniquely about each of them but i can actually kick this all off by taking a look at our first issue issue number two and you know Nathan you already pointed to issue number two and a thing I want to point to it with is Hyperion he flies through Galactus's head which just kind of nerfs everybody in the Marvel Universe a little bit not that Mephisto designing this illusion couldn't make that happen but then it's an illusion right and we see the Imperial Guard and they're all broodsy and Wolverine kind of comes into the X-Men and they they kind of become and the X-Men behind Wolverine so like I'm going to allow for like Hyperion being this guy who the the Imperial Guard comes in and the Imperial Guards behind. And it's really powerful that we see them fall to the brood. It really shows that Jason Aaron has such an understanding of like, you know, things that would break a franchise conceptually. But then every fucking reference to Hyperion's younger days is to the brood. Every reference to Nighthawk's younger days is to the fall of Falcon. Every reference to everyone's everything is all coming from like the same couple of minutes which does two things number one it means this illusion is so fine this illusion is so careful and he's really you know Mephisto isn't really interested in the holes you're going to poke in the illusion but the other thing it means is that the world sort of suffers for it great one time I find out that that's how the Imperial Guard fell and now that's all I know about them I don't know that they're great I don't know why I care you're relying on my caring about the regular Imperial Guard. But you just told me everybody's different by repeatedly using these one shots to point to the same moments in time that are pointed to over and over again. I may be a little bit lost interest. See, I think Hyperion and the Imperial Guard like really flushed this moment out. And I kind of wish we'd gotten some more of that through the issues. I do think if you're just reading the main book, you have no idea why the Imperial Guard means anything to Hyperion other than oh wow look at the scary brood and gladiator but i also think that it speaks to the nature of the problems with this event it doesn't know whether it wants to be age of conchu or age of apocalypse it's closer in terms of scope to age of apocalypse but it just really doesn't have a lot of the support structure that it needs to be that big of an event and because it's not willing 
willing to kind of humble itself and be that small of an event. It is just not really able to carry everything that it wants to, which is where I think one is going to be likely to lose interest. But given how early and often we get references to Squadron Supreme in the Avengers run, the fact that there is something going on with Coulson, the fact that this team is very obviously a bunch of pawns for Mephisto, everything here makes a lot of sense. It's just that all it is is another plot. It's just another thing Mephisto is doing. He's just trying to get his guys on top, which is a completely reasonable storyline in a comic but i don't know that without some real tweaks to the system it can work as an entire au event the main focus the book wants to put on seems to be a lot of work to pay attention to what these heroes represent and how their legacies interact with the kind of like principal architecture of the marvel universe and for that reason by having Having Hyperion need to play so many roles, I don't know that I felt it either enhanced or weakened the efficacy of the storytelling here. I know for sure that by making Hyperion able to face Hulk and face Galactus and some of his relationship with the Fantastic Four, I definitely hit a point where I was very attracted to this American history teacher, uh, you know, this big built guy. But Hyperion as a hero isn't attractive. He's a little too flawless in a way that Hyperion would need to be told that he is for the illusion to work. Yeah, I think a lot of this work speaks to the character of Hyperion in this particular thing, because I, I do think we are intended to assume, you know, that the characters talked about in Heroes Reborn are basically the same person as they are in, in the Marvel Universe. So, like, when he says, you know, when he talks about Dr. Henry Pym, and he said he was a good Christian, a decent husband, and a fun-loving ant-sized sidekick, it really told me what we're in store for with Hyperion, that he's going to be sort of of that fascisty throwback to the 50s kind of character. I think for me, the problem is that I really enjoyed the Hyperion of Hickman's run, the one that was so buddy-buddy and oddly sexual with Thor. And the fact that there have just been so many versions of Squadron Supreme, getting another one and having there be kind of something up with them is just... It's asking to do double duty of like get into these characters, but also immediately know that there is something wrong with them and that you shouldn't really be into them. And, you know, having Hyperion as a Superman analog, you kind of maybe had an opportunity there to have one character be the one that you wanted to follow that you would believe maybe would like defect. And if he knew what was really going on would be on Cap's side it actually kind of seems like that character is going to end up being the blur because of his like heightened awareness of reality. Ultimately, it kind of ends up being none of them, but almost for like no reason other than the plot calls for it. And it's just unfortunate because I continue to think Squadron Supreme is an interesting concept. I like all of these characters conceptually, but I'm waiting for a version that I can latch onto that's going to be 
the definitive 616 universe version that sticks around for a while and that we don't reboot regularly with slightly tweaked details. And I think in this case, it just it kept me from getting super interested in any of them, although I was surprised the degree to which for me this time around, it was really the blur and Dr. Spectrum that I found myself wanting to know more about. But at the end of the day, just they're kind of doomed from the get go in that we know this whole event is ending and as soon as it begins. So immediately, I'm just kind of not willing to invest in any of them. For me, it's always Doc Spectrum and Zarda. They're my two big ones. You know, I don't uh, service top often, but when I do, it's for a dummy mommy like Princess Zarda. Hey, what's up, girl? So definitely into that. And uh, Doc Spectrum just has the coolest gayest powers. You know, I just don't know how he never says anything like, but I'm not a faggot flying through space with my magic rainbows for Jesus. I just don't know how that doesn't come up. But yeah, I think it really is tricky having him play into so many roles, which is why when he doesn't recognize Cap, I was really amused because I don't know number one he couldn't catch a flying blade funny number two how doesn't he recognize Cap like he's Hyperion shouldn't that he doesn't know I don't know because for me in so many ways if Captain America is still Steve Rogers history book man Mark Milton would have come across that and hyper read it and then hyper knew it hyper fast yeah I mean because he does even talk about you know him not being Captain America you know so like that's it's really strange it's a really strange thing maybe if he was disguised by wearing boy thing i'd understand which boy thing i'm sorry they left you out of this crossover boy thing yeah you deserve better cutling like like uh, or sapling or like fern something but you know anyway i think this hyperion issue is really well served by having the hyperion one shot i do like a lot of things about the hyperion one shot there's gay there's yep. Deathbird, there's corsair i love the preview backup story what a clever way to do that and then it says coming in 1992 that's really yes. cute and that you know there's also this Peter Parker backup this the amazing Shutterbug because Peter Parker in this world is Hyperion's personal photographer boy I don't understand but I get that it's supposed to be Superman Jimmy Olsen mm-hmm. how do you guys feel about this two part backup series right because that's how they do it it's sort of like two issues that enhance the experience how do you guys feel do you guys think these Hyperion issues and Spider-Man these Hyperion stories and Spider-Man issue enhanced issue two's experience I mean I kind of feel like I loved all of the backup issues and I did feel like the the best of this crossover was in forgetting the broader story it was a part of and in losing myself in the character and the stories that supported that character's one issue so for me it really is two three four five and six that are the joy of this the shutterbug was such a brilliant one because you do get that moment where you see Hyperion having this interaction with Peter Parker and you know you in the main book you just get this thing of like oh without his powers Peter's just kind of this like he he's this geeky kid that never really stopped being a total geek and you know he's just there to take photos he doesn't it's funny because he doesn't even seem that much like he's a super simp for Hyperion just like that he is not somebody who ever embraced his own identity and he just like remained a geek 
And then you get the Spider-Man issue and you realize that Hyperion <laughs> killed Aunt May and Peter Parker absolutely hates him. And he's still a geek, but he, you know, what we saw was not any kind of love or support for Hyperion. And in, in fact, it is quite the opposite is that he really, really hates him and that he at his core still has that Spider-Man that Peter Parker need to help people. He was just never led on a path where he could express that. And to me, the entire like wrongness and heartbreak of this alternate universe is kind of explained perfectly in these two issues. And I just thought it was a really beautiful storytelling moment as much as I loved a lot of the other ones as well. And how they sussed out as companions to the main story. I think that one, the fact that it captures it so perfectly so early, really is one of the things that set a positive tone for my enjoyment of reading this. I gotta agree, some of my favorite parts of the event are when you are just living in the world, because the world's kind of fun. There's, there's some kind of fun stuff with it. I, I think, I, I don't know if it's my absolute favorite, but it's absolutely one of my favorite issues of this Hero Reborn uh, event is the Hyperion and the Imperial Guard. One, I felt a little silly because that was the first time it really hit me over the head. Oh, Hyperion is supposed to be Superman, but this is Superboy and the Legion of Superhero. Oh, beyond that, like the use of the Imperial Guard was fun. I really, it made me care for Hyperion in some way as a character and, and made me see how somebody could be hardened from that young kid who was so full of life and love and joy, it seemed like, that, you know, that maybe that was the event that turned him into what he is now. And Peter Parker and, and the Peter Parker story is really, really cool. Hate that we all like for Peter to realize he needs to take responsibility. One of his parent figures has to die. And I, I, like, I hate seeing that over and over. But, and I know people think that's part of Spider-Man. But let, if we see another AU, let's not make it part of Spider-Man. And like to go out of your way to fridge Aunt May. Yeah. Like, ugh. I also think, you know, part of why I compare Hyperion to Wolverine is his curse is to outlive everything. So you know he survives the imperial guard becoming brood his body immediately out you know outworks the brood and this notion that hyperion was an outsider because the hyperion that we see is all american blah 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 the imperial guard are all american nothing so his origins don't really match where he winds up so this illusion gives him the idea that trusting outsiders or being a part of the non-american system yeah. which protects him is going to fail him and let him down i think that's a really powerful lesson Now, as much as I enjoyed the second issue, delving into Hyperion, getting to know that debacle de better, I think the third issue really needs some space to be given respect. The exploration of Blur as a character, as a depiction of ADD or ADHD, as somebody who suffers from some pretty severe attention uh, issues as a result of, you know, some casually hilarious mental health. I think it's important to say that this issue actually really did 
did make me feel pretty seen. I, once again, though, really wish we weren't talking about Silver Witch and Pietro and Wanda and that whole thing. Just like, okay, we get that it happened. Show me something different. Yeah, I mean, I would have much rather learned a lot more about Ghost Racer than more about the Wanda Pietro of it all. Like, But um, I love this issue for exactly the same reasons, Nico. Like, it's like it's amazing to see some of the stuff you go through like just on a daily basis like put on the page and you know somebody's like okay cool and this is not a bad thing this is what it is love that love that part of it and yeah the wanda thing why 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 i think it might have made more sense to have not had wanda in the first issue and have given blur a different villain to fight against in that kind of team sequence because the idea that somebody who is also really fast needs to be the person he's fighting against in this issue makes a lot of sense and that it is him fighting against his need to constantly embrace how fast he's going to constantly be the fastest to always be stimulated and for the only way for him to overcome the enemy to be to slow down and like to achieve some form of stillness for even a moment that setup is really smart and interesting to me but it the fact that we have sort of already introduced this character the setup for whom is really just kind of the fact that it is wanda with pietro's powers and that they killed pietro like once you have those two things there's not a ton more you need to know about the character so to have had her revealed in that first issue it does feel like overkill by the time we get to this one but i do feel like she is the appropriate villain when it comes to him having to deal with issues of erasing mind and enlightenment and it's certainly not a complaint about seeing wanda or seeing a cool concept used multiple places it's just that all gog is in the first issue and the seventh, uh, sixth issue yeah and silver which and i think that's even the point you know it's meant to be just like so many moments this illusion only works for so long it's such a quick transformation and it's such a quick transformation back and there's like kind of like a, an element of wanda vision about it even mm-hmm. but i am not losing interest in seeing some of those moments replayed multiple times but maybe because i have read it multiple times at this point it doesn't have the best re-readability in that vein but you know the idea that this character is the one who experiences dr strange like like mystic awareness is sort of interesting to me. I'm a big fan of Arcana, who is the Zatanna or Scarlet Witch of the of the Squadron Supreme, and that she is dispatched so disappointingly and inefficaciously is really disappointing to me. I just felt like they didn't know what to do with another magic person, but that Blur, because he's so fast, is sort of like the Enlightenment guy. That that part of the trade off was okay. I mean, I mentioned this in our first discussion on this. The idea that like it is not really an enlightenment that is one out of hard work. It's kind of a cheat enlightenment really to me was a solid illustration of the fact that nothing that's happening here is earned. These guys being the ultimate champions of this particular.
popular universe and the the truest heroes is supposed to kind of like reek of inauthenticity. And I thought that was a really great moment of me really getting to see that and see if the Hyperion issue really showed me that these guys maybe are not the great people they're depicted as because we see Peter Parker just being so heartbroken by what Hyperion has done. This issue kind of showed me that like their victories are also sort of cheap and just for show and are not one out of great sacrifices and great deeds, but rather having sort of figured out how to game the system. Agree. That's exactly. You know, the idea that they're able to constantly get ahead, that the only villains they seem to fight are the villains that are in the opening montage. All of their memories are different pieces of other people's memories. There's a lot of layers to which this really is starting to feel more and more like Mephisto's plan was busted way too fast. Like overnight, it seems. And Blur being one of the only characters that seems to regularly challenge what's going on. He says a number of times, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this. There's a lot that I think is a really good use of the characters, the tropes, the notions that build this world together. But I think the biggest thing is making sure that these characters continue to represent the hallmarks of the Marvel Universe that they're meant to. I wonder who the Blur is meant to stand in for. Is it Quicksilver? Because who the fuck is Quicksilver in the modern Marvel Universe? Who is Superman? The Sentry? Adam the Blue Marvel? I love Adam the Blue Marvel. That's an amazing character who gets minimal respect and minimal page time and certainly is not a major leading Avenger most of the time. So then who's the fastest Avenger? Thor, I guess? Maybe Iron Man? Because Rocket Vroom Vroom? Carol? For sure. So I see all the ways in which this represents analogous DC counterparts, but Blur not really lining up with anybody in the Avengers so succinctly really helps me say Blur's reinterpretation is a really good one and certainly one that I look to from the other characters as well. And I guess the one thing that I wish is that we got more of a sense that the fact that this all falls apart so quickly was part of the grander narrative design and not just a result of the fact that this couldn't really continue for that long no matter what. We do get Mephisto at the the end of this kind of being like, yeah, you know, this was just kind of something I was trying out, which is always a fine way to wrap things up. But I, you know, if this had been the type of thing where it was really a test of how the Avengers would break the spell to figure out ways to build better ones, I might have been able to get into it a little bit more than just like, well, I tried my best and it didn't work out. Really? This is your best, Mephisto? Okay. Yeah, this this whole plan is so haphazardly thrown together. It's it's for Mephisto. It's really hard to see Mephisto having done this. I mean, the dude's been around for, what, millennia, right? Like, he's a major cosmic force, and he couldn't get this right. It's so, so haphazard for him. He's usually a little bit more put together. Maybe he just had a bad day. Well, one of the things I love that he enjoyed about this is if we are saying that this is Mephisto pulling pieces together and plotting plans with precision, even if they practically fall apart right away this magneto and the mutant force issue steve orlando you my friend steve orlando that i'm evidently talking to so casually because we're just bff in this conversation now hey steve orlando uh (laughs) the guy kicked around the halls of the marvel universe working 
on every miniseries and every side story, and it seemed like they were giving him every weird boutique title for a minute. And now he not only has his feet firmly planted in the Marvel Universe, but other books really, you know, heavily react to his. And this Magneto and the Mutant Force issue smacks of him, but <laughs> also whatever their creepy fucking names are, I am not here for Mr. One and Two. I don't care. <laughs> it's not cool. This is how you know the universe is doomed from the get-go. <laughs> we have Magneto, Frenzy, Rogue, Jubilee, and Mr. One and Two. And then there's a lot of Emma Frost. This issue, with the right tweaks, could almost just be a Krakoan issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How did you guys feel about this foray into Magneto's mutant menace? I'm so mixed on it, right? Because, like, the X-Men fan of me wants to, like, wants to go really hard on some of the choices that were made. But, like, the AU fan of me is like, hey, lighten up, dude. You know, you know they can't go into everything. And, you know, everybody's going to make interesting, cool choices. Like, there were, the things I did, like, I, I love Frenzy being on, like, the main team or whatever. I did love Rogue and Jubilee's looks. I thought they were pretty, pretty cool. Like, that uh, scaly kind of looking yellow jacket for Jubilee. Beautiful. But the story itself was really interesting. I think I enjoyed more of the little pieces that were thrown in there, like the little character who's little characters who got a panel or two more than the overall story. You can sort of always tell early on when the X-Men are not going to get the weight that they deserve in a big event like this. And the fact that it's this story, you know, it's this kind of hunt for Xavier story. Everything about this kind of would be fine as like a, the mutants are doing their own thing. They're on their island. They're not really a threat, which I don't know that I buy. That's but setting that aside, the fact that it's all to this end of Cassandra Nova showing up as kind of like a mix of herself and Onslaught. And she has the ability to just like break people into their component parts, a la Wanda and Jean and a lot of things, but it's just never mentioned again. <laughs> like she feels like she should be the ultimate thing that takes down squadron supreme in this but at yeah. the end of the day it's just like oh and then this like omnipotent mutant was created and can do anything that she wants but don't don't worry about that it's not gonna come up again well it's like when the shiar were like let's go chase us a phoenix yeah and we're just like, oh, that's just dangling. And then I was like, wait, is Cassie Nova the Phoenix that they were? Cha oh, wait, no, I'm just combining things now. <laughs> and I had to uh, think that out. I think, you know, uh, Trapsy Nova, as she is <laughs> just waiting at the end to spring herself on you. She being like, oh, no, Magneto, it was your anger that kept me alive. What's a problem is, man, there's places that Charles's dialogue with just a couple of tweaks, really, Cassie's dialogue straight up. Mm -hmm. The part of this issue that I liked the most was power princess well white queen that's how you know a homosexual worked on this <laughs> because there's a pageantry to it that's true that it really sets itself apart with its gay the big thing here that I took away from was the catastrophe encounter earth number seven is my new favorite issue of any book ever and I can't <laughs> wait to get my hands on it and I mean of course the the mutants are going to have the coolest alternate history issues too yeah, I, I love how you could tell how exactly opposite this Charles Xavier had to have been because in the 05, there was no Cyclops. But hey, guess what? <laughs> <Jin>. <laughs> 
What a I nice like, Charles. I was like, wow, that Charles is pretty cool. Where is this Charles Xavier? It was fun to see those cool tweaks. I did love the flashback scene where we saw the heroes fight, or the heroes, the mutants fight in New York. And it was one of those things where I was like, I was like, ooh, yay. Wanda and Pietro were mutants once before this, in this reality. Yay. Because, yeah, they're mutants. <clears throat> and uh, so's Franklin. <clears throat> I have a list of people that are still fucking mutants. What about so, Gracie and a squirrel girl? Uh, still a mutant. Yeah. And uh, so's which one? Uh, Gwenpool? She a Gwen, fucking mutant too. Gwenpool is still a mutant. Yes, yeah. She and she gets to stay it. Yeah. I'm not taking it back. No Tixies Baxies. <laughs> I got X genes for everybody. Come get them, right? You like the Oprah of X genes? You get an X gene and you get an X gene. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Mr. Sinister. You want to be a mutant? Come here. I got metal teeth. Here's my big question for you guys. As we stand at the precipice of issue four and staring down the barrel of of seven and the end we're just gonna roll right from this back into our avengers coverage and we're picking up at world war she hulk and or you know she hulks of mass destruction i forget what the fuck it's called but we're picking right up with that storyline having just walked away from the phoenix and having just stepped away from age of khonshu ghost riders the whole point of this event was look how not those things this is i find myself not very excited to go back to Avengers after this. This really broke my strut. This really threw off my speed. And I don't know if it's that I maybe felt like it was too many arcs in a row that are about the central heart of this major power where I felt burnt out in general. But I can really tell you, I am not looking forward to going back to Avengers as much as I know there's a bunch of stories I like coming up because this just really shook my sails. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling the same way. This as the squad Supreme storyline just leaves me not really understanding how they're fitting into this whole story. This kind of by the end starts to be like, or was this the star brand story? But I think we know that that is in fact coming up towards the end of this run. I just don't really know what we were doing here, but it did kind of disrupt the flow of my Avengers read. And in a way that I don't know what it added to my understanding of the broader point of Aaron's run. It really was just like kind of a vacation, but it's one of those vacations that makes you realize that maybe your job isn't as great as you thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I gotta agree. Like, when I originally read This Heroes Reborn event, I, I really dropped out of Avengers. I was really excited and I was really pumped and reading through it. It was a really good, fun story. But now on this read through, it, it feels so disjointed. It feels like it, like, it feels like it promised to be a little bit more with the Mephisto story than it was. You know, you're setting up this big alternate reality. You're like, okay, cool. We're finally going to deal with Mephisto, right? Like, cool. We're going to get that over the way. There's no way you can run 60 something issues of Avengers and Mephisto's. The big grand overall going villain there's no way right <laughs> it really doesn't do anything for the story it, it picks up from some dropped plot points that happened early on like when the you know the squadron supreme appeared you're like oh wait which squadron supreme are they and i'm it's these guys right here i think it does have some ramifications for the book going forward but only in the avengers and only in one character who joins on the team later on and it's a shame because i feel like if this had been made its own like 40 issue 
AU that I could read. Like if it was like 20 issues of the main run and like 20 issue one shot that follow it. And this was all available on Marvel Unlimited or I could buy it all through Comixology for $3.99. And it was like a weekly series and it ran 40 weeks. I, I Fuck, I'd pick this up. I would enjoy that. I love a good like little side AU where there's consequences. But yeah, it's that it feels like these characters aren't our characters back in Avengers. Like if I'm talking about this in terms of Avengers, I'm like, yeah, this is okay. If I'm talking about this on its own thing, I'm like, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. It really is weird how the context changes everything. This event needed better than Marvel gave it is kind of my my end takeaway. This needed more support. It needed more behind it and it just didn't get it. So it kind of languishes. I also think Squadron Supreme deserves that. Like if this had been the definitive establishing of a team that was going to remain in the Marvel Universe and be Squadron Supreme, this could have been the kind of slow burn, really takes a lot of effort that gets us that team. But I do not feel we are going to end Jason Aaron's Avengers with a Squadron Supreme that will be any more established than any of the previous ones we've had that have not been allowed to stay around. I think I kind of agree with both of you on a lot of things. I think uh, definitely in the read of an Avengers read through context, it's it's not as great of a story as it is on a standalone. Yeah, I do think that if Marvel had allowed this to maybe have taken over like an Age of Apocalypse event, they could have established Squadron Supreme more as a player afterwards, could have given some of these stories a little bit more room to breathe because Magneto and the Mutant Force issue alone, cool, it sets it up like you're like, cool, it's a story and then you get a cliffhanger at the end and you're like we never see the continuation of it it would have been cool to see like a little contained miniseries for some of these stories and they would have been able to flesh out the world more and also give us while fleshing out the world give us more background into the squadron supreme as it relates to their arc on the whole i'm excited to come back take a look at the rest of the issues and then you know get back into avengers wrap that guy up we're you know pretty excited about some crazy things going on behind the scenes here on the show restructuring trying to do a little bit more of this taking a look at multiple stories and analyzing them from a central tenant and then exploring them outward. And if the stories keep being this nuanced and this complicated and this complex, then even when we don't love the outcome of the story, we're always going to have a challenging, exciting conversation like this. And, you know, that's really the goal of this kind of program. You know, it's about going so much deeper than just looking at the panels themselves. It's exploring the, you know, the deeper meaning of the four color printing process and of these crazy stories trapped in these gutters. So I can't wait to see where Avengers ultimately ends and if it includes anything from Heroes Reborn and, you know, maybe it will. Who knows? I'm Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at DazzlerOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bread. Soon to be Sanguine Threads, because I'm bracing that. So yeah, start looking for me all over media. I'll do what I can. <laughs> Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. My pronouns are they and them. And I hope you survive the experience, unlike possibly Hunter's Moon at the end of this comic. But today we are here talking about Moon Knight number 16, 
Chinatown, written by Jed McKay, art by Alessandro Capuccio, color art by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Moon Knight, the Midnight Mission in Chinatown. It's one of the last action-oriented Moon Knights that we've seen in a while, which has been nice to me. I like the way that this episode is split into A plot and B plot, so that we can get most of it being Moon Knight doing kind of like a talking explanation of like the backgrounds of these vampires and like what's going on with the vampire war and we can get all that conversation while at the same time we get an intercut with Hunter's Moon doing his silent action fight piece with Nemian and Grenmal. And I like how colors alternate between like warm color vibe to all of the Mr. Knight sequences where it's like yellows and reds and oranges and pinks and then there's this like cold blue purple lavender misty atmosphere to the Hunter's Moon sequences so it keeps those tonally very distinct from each other so you know exactly where you are when you flip an intercut in the comic but it also it gives this like different vibe to each you know you got your warm inner room and then you got that like cold misty graveyard atmosphere marvel 2099 rooftop mist going on Mm -hmm. i the colors in this really blew me away because there was such a huge discrepancy like we're used to seeing you know the more the the orangey red and and yellow tones at very certain points and usually we see that the blues and the greens given to moon knight almost exclusively so to see them shift and be on hunter's moon instead you really felt what role hunter's moon was falling into you know the paper comic itself the colors are beautiful and vibrant but like this is one of those comics and issues that just the backlighting from the digital version of it make those white pop even more than they do on the actual printed comic page it is really nice to see how different it is in the two formats yeah the colors do a great job and i think in like full natural light you get most of the effect but there's nothing like being in a dark room and reading comics on a lit screen from behind because it just makes all those neons look like they're actually shining you know and they are mm-hmm. are we loving this vampire grand dame that we are introduced to mm-hmm. you guys all are. she's great i'm i'm so frustrated to still not know her name because i was like what what is your name mysterious lady i know i am looking through it and i'm like what is her name i'm like okay vampire grand dame that's who you are her body language in this comic is so like relaxed and chill but it's the kind of chill that like a tiger has right before it strikes and mm-hmm. we see that when she does grab moon knight and push him up against the wall by his neck and she moves faster than the panel can turn you know the first vampire of her bloodline older than vlad dracula trained by the immortal young so much mystery and elegance introduced in this one character that i don't as far as i know we've never seen before and is connected to like a marvel uk character just like the whole vibe that i got from them was just very I am. That is all. I am. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> just, I get that. I get that oh. sense too, especially in this clothing style of like just the open shirt and the long white pants. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh. You know who this character kind of reminds me of in a way, and it might be partly the hair, but like mm-hmm. a little bit like Dila from Star Trek: The Next Generation. You know, like Denise Crosby. <laughs> yeah, Denise Crosby's Romulan. <laughs> yeah, because like the hair is very Romulan. And fuck it, I'm like the queen Romulan kind of like dance to it. I love it. Like not afraid to like grab some dude and choke him out yeah her portrayal is really cool she's just got like that kind of effortless cool and charisma and then she doesn't have like the normal blade centric like vampire mouth neither the ones from the movies or Mm -hmm. from the comics but she's got like instead these two curved blades that come out the sides of her cheeks and point outward like tusks and it's so cool yeah i was like this is a really different vampire this is not your typical blade you know where you get a little bit more heaviness around the eyes and like you know some ridge 
imaging and you know the teeth yeah this feels like very almost demonic or or angry spirit folklore asian vampires i love it i was surprised to see that this character is not seemingly a jiangshi like a chinese vampire but i did like that the the appearance of the face reminds me of i know that's japanese but it does remind me of like an oni or depictions of oni doesn't give us just the same thing repackaged she is in she or they she they is not interested in being the kind of vampire we normally see and i think that's like the coolest thing about her i really like the bit where they're talking about the only way to stave off the madness that comes with immortality which we know all too well from moira at this point is that she cultivates an interest in humanity's interests you know she makes sure that she knows what is going on with humanity she keeps up with the times she keeps up with the culture the fashions the food and she invests herself in our petty daily lives because we can change and we can grow and as long as she can change and grow with the times and stay something that's not ever static then they'll they'll never be like you know moira or yang or any of the other dread immortals that we've seen lose their minds over the centuries yeah that whole monologue she goes on the thought of you know being alive since the young dynasty but seeing humanity grow and change and saying like i have to change the time it's so amazing that the tutor was somebody that she fostered his goals his desires it's something interesting the trainee trying to go crazy and take over the world over the mentor's head has been done before in comics but i really do like the idea and the way it's presented so it's like a sales trope presented in a new solid way and like the distinct way in which the tutor was made the tutor's name is kenneth i laughed so fucking hard at that kenneth is really into mlms and wants to be wants to be the head of a cult you know kenneth is the kind of person who is like always trying to get people to buy his board apes or whatever it's very funny and like the fact that he didn't even become a vampire through like a rite of succession or anything like that but just stole stole blood from one of this vampire's brides which a nice touch you know every vampire has to have brides of course the brides of dracula the brides of this nameless vampire from chinatown yeah no it's so crazy like i've never heard of anybody getting themselves turned in that manner before i love it it is so like nicole inspector gadget super villain type of thing the one thing it reminds me of more than anything else and there's no way this is on purpose because of the timing of this but like it reminds me of hulk king from the she hulk show on disney plus like the guy who's full shields blood to turn himself into a hulk yes yes to, to, exactly to foster his own like men's rights activism cult mm-hmm. honestly i am so surprised that kenneth wasn't also a men's right activist i'm just like well there's that time. would have been the holy tribe right <laughs> oh man like but oh. i like the fact that twice over in this issue instead of leaning into a trope they leaned the opposite direction like we have a vampire who openly seeks to keep up with the times which to me makes way more sense than being anachronistic because if you're out there to be immortal and experience everything why would you keep wanting to like stay hard in your ways and just experience the same thing over and over yeah. and over and over and over again same like for regular humans of our own lifespan right like you can't just stay yeah. the same forever yeah exactly so i'm like thank you a vampire who's actually trying to keep up with the times because that's how you keep sane to have a white man steal something and appropriate somebody else's culture mm, mm, <laughs> wonder when that's been done before yeah no I, I i can't think of any time that that has happened yeah it feels like it's not accidental that this is a story of somebody stealing
giving you know her blood in order to to appropriate her powers and culture mm-hmm. yeah and i'm but i'm here for it because you know that it's going to be a story of you know reclaiming firm foundations and principles even if you have to shift where your original perspective is it's part of growth. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to see that we're building up to a confrontation with the Vampire Nation and Dracula in this. Mm-hmm. I think the juxtaposition of this vampire and Dracula, who is decidedly the kind of vampire who has never changed his ways or changed, like, I mean, the only change Dracula has gone through has been from being handsome back in the 70s to not hot anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> he may not be, like, super hot now like he was, but, like, you know, he's confident as fuck. <laughs> yeah. He's a four, but he's got top energy. Right? Yeah, but he used to just have, like, this the most alpha possible energy while looking like, you know, a, a Gene Cullen creation. <laughs> he had a mustache. He was large and in charge. Yeah, I think, like, this Dracula, it would be hard to see how Storm would have, you know, like, possibly what? fallen under his throne. Yeah, no. But, like, 70s Dracula, okay. <laughs> this Dracula, she would have been like, mm, bitch, please. It's nice to see and the reminder that there are vampires in the world who look at Dracula like a child. That's true. Do we think it is important to Reese's character or her story, her slight fib in how Soldier became a vampire? I mean, yeah like as she explains here it was a ridiculous an an accident ridiculous enough to be a plot point in like a douglas copeland novel from the 90s but like (laughs) the fact that he infected because he got shot through her heart is hilarious coincidence she's not directly responsible you know but she's gonna feel like well obviously i'm responsible for him soldier by the way super annoying in this comic as he has been recently Mm. with his whole like orders are orders but i did like him being like yeah i've worked for absolutely insane bosses i know that's like but that's not like my current boss just like i'm not talking about you man i'm talking about hydra i like soldier in theory but like i'm still not solid about him yeah i agree i like i like soldier in theory i'm uncomfortable with the way moon knight is so comfortable just like letting him be his soldier especially after it got him literally killed (laughs) mark is just repeating his own past and that's what feels so gross about it right is because like this led to mark becoming a, a seemingly undead moon knight man and it has been very hard for him since i know it's the only thing that makes his life make sense anymore but like i don't know i always thought it was that he understood that this was bad for soldier and he was trying to keep him around to to prevent him from going down that path and i may be reading a whole lot into this that is not there but like that's why i always kind of felt that like mark kind of like tolerated and kept up with it because absolutely mark knows that this kind of dedication to whatever is gonna get you fucking killed it did get him killed but for moon knight you know and that's like that's the thing like moon knight is the cause of this guy's death whether he's undead or not and then like i don't know just it's it irks me when soldiers like orders or orders and moon knight's like see he does what i want and i'm like come on man like you're enabling this behavior it's you got to get him out of this mindset mark you've done so much to grow you've gotten therapy you've gone through a lot of self-reflection and and honestly tried to change your ways for you to put somebody else through the exact same thing that you did that brought you to Conchu's doorstep like why would you do that to somebody else it is it is interesting how he is
is he is so adamant that Reese not become a monster like he is, but he does not seem to have much qualms about the idea of Soldier doing that. Maybe because he's like, well, Soldier's already a monster like, monster like me. Like, Soldier's a vet, and he worked for a horrible organization that is Nazis. And, like, I don't know, maybe he thinks Soldier's already down that path or whatever, and has just accepted it and is going to, like, keep using him like this. But it's, it is striking, the, di- the difference in his protectiveness between the two. Soldier's like, damn it, I'll never be Dad's favorite. He clearly loves Reese more. Boo. Oh, I'm going to throw a fit over here. Let me turn some people into... Oh, my gosh. He could go rogue and turn people into vampires. Just oh, to, for like... fuck's sake. <laughs> that would be so predictable. If Jed McKay decided to have Soldier do that, I would be like, that's Soldier right there. That's just his character. <laughs> oh, Soldier. <laughs> I did like getting that deep sort of back history on Kenneth and Tudor. There is also a side thread running through this issue. Hunter's Moon battle with knockoff Sabretooth and Grandmall and Nimmy. I did like that I mentioned earlier that Hunter's Moon was fighting in cold colors while he was on the roofs in his like 90s Spider-Man the Animated Series world. I do want to note that like the moment that he's overwhelmed by the vampires when he starts losing that does shift to like this Batman the Animated Series <laughs> blood red sky and we get we get this like much more bloody and sanguine sort of uh, atmosphere. I really enjoyed that. Most definitely. I, I like that they had this this like background feel going on because I don't think we needed an entire comic book dedicated to Hunter's Moon going and doing this. I think it would have been mostly silent anyways. He does some great soliloquies. We saw that with Stained Glass Mary. I don't think that one would have been much of a talking issue. And so I think that would have been a lot of silent panels or panels that just, you know, didn't really fill or, you know, have that need to fill, you know, space and time and introspection. So laying these two together, I think kind of lended what each story needed. So Hunter's Moon had more of the grit and the action and the Mr. Knight story had a bit more progression of self and, and some new discoveries. I never thought I would fall in love with Hunter's Moon. Like, ooh, Hunter's Moon, because it's amazing. And I love doing that every time I talk about him. But, you know, besides that, Jed has me so into him at the end of this issue when we get that crack. I am like, oh my God, he needs to survive. And then I was like, wait, Fist of Conchu. So, like, they, they, they've already died before, right? So he'll come back. He'll come back. I am so afraid for Hunter's Moon, though. This raises the question, did Hunter's Moon ever die? I mean, yeah, he did. But, like, this this whole sequence is, like, so rough because I don't want Hunter's Moon to die. I don't want him to be out of the comic. I don't think he is. I don't think Hunter's Moon would be introduced as such a cool creation and then, like, be taken out of the comic like this, you know? But it does raise the question, like, is he going to come back through Kanchu or is he going to be resurrected as a vampire? A thing that would be so personally distasteful to him. There's an opportunity here for even more conflict, for internal conflict for Hunter's Moon. But I do like that he gets the chance to to wail on a bunch of vampires like he likes to do and he takes at my count he takes three steak knives uh three crowbars three flathead screwdrivers and a claw hammer to the back <laughs> and is not dead there's a straight up skeleton in that scene right there he looks like wolverine on those covers of the ten of swords like issues you know when he's just like got mm-hmm. a shitload of knives sticking through him i mean he clearly wasn't dead before he got his neck snapped but he must have been close you know so it's hard for me to believe that he survived having his neck snapped after that. I know he'll be coming back. I don't know how. What if they take him and turn him for the structure? But yeah, you know, Hundred's Moon, like, he is he is 
very driven and very set in his idea of who he is and what role he serves so like i'm i'm wondering i'm honestly wondering could they bring him back as a vampire and would he be turned for the structure Ooh, that'd be interesting to see his mystical sides have to fight and see who who would win would being the avatar of Kanchu outpower being under the thrall of vampirism hmm. interesting is any final thought on this moon night it was a very fun issue and it got me very excited for what might be to come yeah, like that kind of issue it was, you know it was fun action there was talking there was more explication of mysteries there was drama there was fear it was and i i'm just gonna say i need to see a whole series of i'm calling them sila of the sila vampire and just her going around being fabulous and So, like, our first movie is over. And, like, we have a few minutes before the second one comes in. Let's go to the lobby. Oh, my God. Who's that there? Is that Kyle? Hi. It's Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantus82. Were you at this movie theater the whole time with us? Yeah, I was just waiting for the awesome movie to start. (laughs) Yeah, you must have been watching something else. I'm only doing the single feature. So, like, these being two great magic issues that we are talking about, like, what is any of y'all's favorite, like, double feature of, like, movies or, like, entertainment to, like, go and absorb? Like, I would love to see, like, I'm making up a dream one right now. Like, I would love to see a dream midnight showing double feature of Rocky Horror Picture Show and then rebuild the genetic opera. Uh, Fond of how the Music Box Theater sometimes does, like, Black Christmas and Die Hard or Black Christmas and Home Alone as a Christmas double feature. I think that's really, really fun. I've never actually been to a double feature before. Probably have to be something holiday related. Either that or mm, no, that would that would have to be more of a marathon type of a thing. I was gonna say like a Lord of the Rings ish type of thing, but that's more of a marathon. They do that though. I do. I have gone to the theaters to see like them marathoning the Lord of the Rings movies or the Star Wars movies. I think for me, this is always hard because it kind of depends on like what mood am I in. Right. But if I were to do a, a movie double feature, I think I would want to do Melissa McCarthy and and Jude law and jason statham i would that movie and then directly after that i think i would want to do kick ass because i that just i just right now i would love to have like an action-packed just schlocky fun no think but ha funny kind of night it's yeah yeah that sounds amazing yes i wow yeah that okay all right i have written down all of y'all's ideas and we're doing them (laughs) all of them (laughs) oh my god we better run back to the theater the second movie starting deep babe what are we watching Today we are watching Defenders Beyond number four, Da'at, the land of couldn't be, shouldn't be. Our storytellers for this issue are Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez, and our letterer is VC's Joe Caramagna. I fucking loved it. Like, I think uh, this series overall, I have just fucking loved it. <laughs> like, not a miss at all. Like, before we dive into the nitty gritty of the issue, like, just like overall impressions of the issue from all of y'all. The margins are like kind of important in Defenders in general and Defenders Beyond. You know, they always have some, like, 
like Javier Rodriguez is always thinking about what's going on with the panel layout and with the margins. But this issue takes a little bit of a break from Javier Rodriguez's normal like splashing across the page and doing really intricate layouts. And it's much more like a conventional comic book. But in the scenes where we're in the dream that is created for them, the panel borders are white like the white hot room, which we know as like that's the, the gutters of the comic book. The borders of the page is where the white hot room's fire is always coursing through. But as we get to we go back to the land of dot the land of couldn't be shouldn't be it's all like completely black panel borders and then glorian tries to recreate his fantasy again but now that everybody knows it's a fantasy everything is gray on the panel borders and the, there's clouds in the sky and over the course of the comic the clouds start to rain and the gray gets grayer and grayer and there's just a subtle shade gradient over the course of the comic until the gray fades all the way back to black it's a really clever trick and it gives this impression of like a flickering light and an attempt at creation that just can't survive under the power of its own like disbelief this comic has like a lot of thematic and like parallel evolution convergence with like Pax Americana by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly from Multiversity. Not only does it just like that comic open with us, you know, like a superhero being involved with the assassination of a JFK like figure and this like old timey what if superheroes could have been thing. But on top of that all, you know, it like Pax Americana, it is very focused on the idea of like, what is a comic book? What are the actual panels and borders and limits and edges of, of reading a comic book in the experience of it. it it talks a lot about the formal structure of comics pax americana does obviously with its algorithm eight and its whole like eight panel layout formalist structure but this comic also is very focused on the idea of like what actually constructs a physical comic at a certain point we leave the pains of the comic book as we did back in the defenders miniseries by al ewing and javier rodriguez and we stand outside of it and we stand in the land of can be shall be when we flip to the other side of the page when we flip outside of the plane of the comic book and I think that this book is in conversation with that book, but as we'll see, it's also very much in conversation with the DC universe as a whole and its structure and its cosmology and its endless reboots. It really makes you think about how we have set up the structure and just retooled and repurposed archetypes again and again and again, especially with like certain storylines. Like, well, what happens if we have a hero that gets the respect of their peers suddenly because they become so powerful or just so trusted or whatever and like oh god that was heartbreaking to see that that's what Greer has always wanted but doesn't feel like she has gotten being Tigra being part of the greater Marvel universe like to see that she does not feel valued by her her teammates and in large part she's right they have definitely downplayed who she is and ignored her importance and her her personal strength to an absolute detriment what happens when you have a super hero who gets involved with world politics it was so great to see it and then to also see that yeah these are things that that really shouldn't happen or you know we need to do better because they're a utopic dream that doesn't go anywhere yeah, and they ignore their previous continuities in order to create something that they think will, that glorian thinks will be more appealing to his audience which ties so heavily into how how many shots this issue is firing directly at dc's crisis on infinite earths and later crises and attempts to reboot in continuity. It's very explicit in this issue, down to having like a recreation of the line of Earths from the original Crisis on Infinite Earths by George Burns. Marvel does it too. Marvel does do it too, but I like 
that this issue is focusing very specifically on how like Marvel has had a dedicated continuity since the beginning, even with the beginning of the eighth cosmos, everybody still has to live with the things that have happened to them, despite minor retcons. But these characters are actively rebelling against the idea of having their continuities wiped out, erased, the lives that they've lived become nothing and meaningless, and suspending their disbelief to the point where they have to just accept that this is the new life that they've always led. And even like Lorian's appearance in this, like he looks very psycho pirate. <laughs> like and he acts you're gonna have as you said. He's like you gotta have the you gotta have the psycho pirate. And he's acting very pariah from the Crisis on Infinite Earth. I love that. Literally seems like he's doing what uh Dark Crisis is trying to do right now in DC. Yeah, with enough power I can fix everything. And then Taya says, and what then when your new timeline doesn't make the grade? Reboot after reboot, you said, and each sooner than the last, always hunting for the perfect fix, until not even we know if we're the true story or your latest maybe verse, which is a very accurate summation of how it feels reading modern DC comics right now after Infinite Frontier. I'm always like, is this in co- is this canon? I don't know. Which canon is this? Who's alive? Who's dead? Who knows where everybody is? But Taya will choose home's heartbreak over empty happiness in your world of shadows. And that feels a lot like saying like, no, our histories, our lives, the people we are right now is important to us. And Adam agrees. When I started reading this comic book, I had sort of suspended dis- disbelief because I'm like, whatever I'm going to be reading next in this comic is probably going to change kind of the way I, I take in comic books. So I'm like, okay, clear my brain, think of nothing, suspend all disbelief. And I did for like, for those first couple pages i'm like what the hell is what the did they holy crap like and the fact that america chavez fought her way out of lorian's control especially you know like in part due to the eternity mask but also because that is very central to the core of who she is like she doesn't just run away from the bad stuff she's learned she has to to face it and that's the only actual way to get through it and build something more i've really enjoyed america's part in this issue the fact that the eternity mask let her see the the illusion enough to realize that this isn't the perfect world that she could be living in she doesn't have access to her sister and obviously her moms aren't still around as well so she realizes that she has to live with the reality of what her life is instead of running away to this this fantasy utopia i love that i haven't fully worked out how this works yet but it does feel also like these dreams in the land of couldn't be shouldn't be are directly tied to their like tarot readings in the first issue blue marvel had the reverse ten of wands which was indicating a burden above and beyond what he was already carrying and I don't know what else describes that better than becoming the president of the United States of America Taya had the reverse ten of cups indicating a severing of family ties and here we see her reunited with her son happily as his herald actually and riding on Orion's astroglider it looks like or something (laughs) and uh, Tigra I don't know about Tigra's but Tigra was thought of as maybe a summation of the spirit or a completion of the spirit and she gets to be the leader of the Avengers and an A-lister she gets to hold all the tools of these various archetypes of of her friends all the tools tools that have pretty traditionally not been given to women and especially not women who had a more ethnic background so like thor's hammer like how much contention have we seen around a woman being anywhere near thor's hammer let alone able to just lift it like it's nothing 
Captain America's shield. Again, so traditionally held by, you know, a white man. It's in her hand. And then Tony Stark's helmet, which again, like Riri, when she became Ironheart, she wasn't becoming Iron Man. She became Ironheart, basically his protege. And yet still we had this stupid amount of pushback for just existing. Yeah. I just found her wearing uh, Cyclops' visor just... It was weird! <laughs> this may be a reach, but I uh, would also like to point out that if we take Tigra as some kind of completion of the spirit over the course of this, or a summation of the spirit as a fifth suit of the tarot cards, I do want to mention that these can all be seen as the tools of magic that we see on the card of the magician in tarot, where, you know, all the tools of magic are arrayed there, the swords, the wands, the cups, the pentacles, and, like, I mean, Steve Rogers' shield is nothing if not a pentacle, and the hammer is definitely an instrument of magical might like a wand but she's holding all of these tools these tools and weapons and like artifacts of power and it just makes me think of all of the individual aces of the suits of the tarot as gifts of the spirit and all of them have been given to tigra here well also she has each representative of major power spheres in the marvel universe so thor representing magic cyclops visor is mutants tony's helmet is technology Captain America is metahumans. And then Tigra herself is mystical embodiments. So like the major archetypes for how you can can kind of slot characters into, oh, are they, you know, more godlike, celestial, that kind of thing? Are they more like a Doctor Strange magic user? You know, those particular large overreaching themes. It is great that Loki forms the Eternity Mask into what can only be described as a condom and puts it on her horn. And through the power of that, dials the X of the multiverse. <laughs> Very funny when the Queen of Never shows up and reveals to us that she is the same person as the Pilgrim, the embodiment of the fourth cosmos that we saw with Cloud and the archetypes previously in Defenders. And I just love her answer that, for I am lover to eternity who holds my number sacred and magical. Like, is her number four? Do you just dial dial four? And you get... But four also being the number of the colors in the four color printing process, among other things. I love that you saw that as a condom, because to me that looks more like a, an extension. One of the horns on Loki's helmet has been continually broken. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I like I totally thought he was uh, she was putting it over the horn, but she's actually replacing mm-hmm. the broken horn. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a, com- a completion of her power because like like a lot of a lot of Loki's power is represented in the helmet or in the horns that he they she usually has or wears. So like when we see Tom Hiddleston like just you know walking around as Loki, you know, it's usually, yeah, you know, in the green, but sands the horns. But when he really wants to show how powerful, how, how much of a god he is, he puts on the full horn. So it's like, it's a representation of power right there. That reveal of the Queen of Never, that was probably my second gasp moment. Just how beautiful that panel was. With the change from all of the muted colors of the previous pages to this absolutely vibrant and almost i mean it was breaking through the rain that was developing and you could see the light coming from her it was just so incredibly beautiful the entire sequence that follows with cloud giving the monologue about like unchecked possibility is freedom even in your world you'd be surprised what can be like you know this whole sequence is like so profoundly beautiful not only because of the colors but also because of what it says like i was deeply moved by cloud you know a non-binary archetype who is equal to all of all of their peers the other the other 
other superheroic archetypes like Cloud is one of those now and is on an equal footing with them all and is talking about how like you know you're trapped Glorian is trapped in the land of couldn't be shouldn't be but you know if only he could be open to like pushing past his own limits and like being open to all the possibilities the universe has to offer then this could always have been the land of can be shall be you know what you think is impossible isn't so impossible sometimes and when you embrace the possible when you embrace what can be and what should be and what shall be that's true freedom and that has so much meaning to me personally as a non-binary person but also just like for all of these characters for cloud in particular for comic books as a whole and as you're saying when queen remembers breaks through it becomes like through the rain and cuts through the muted colors but when we flip the page to the land of everywhere instead of nowhere like we're actually outside of panel borders even at this point like there aren't there aren't any panel borders to behold because we're outside of the comic book we flipped off of the page itself i I love when the when she comes down and breaks through those those dark storm clouds i just noticed that the trees that glorian has created some of them actually do look a lot like letters so it just it gave even more of a sense of yeah this is where certain comics have like gone to die like where where just you know things that ended up in the ash can or you know started but really never went anywhere and like it's such a star contrast and like part of me as they're you know as as they're being scooped up and then slowly moving away and he's he's fading back into darkness like part of me my heart aches for him because he can't get past his own limitations and i think a lot of us have been there at you know one time or another where you're just like oh all these things all these things that you get you know mired in these minor details of things that are like honestly never going to go anywhere and if you just pushed in a different direction look for a little bit more introspective like tried to grow past your own borders and boundaries you do so much better but yeah like oh my heart aches just a little bit but it's also this is his limitation and he doesn't he doesn't see any reason to change gee i wonder i wonder what this reminds me of i love when al ewing writes cosmic concepts or gods or devils because there's always like this grandiose biblical language that goes with it and seeing the queen of numbers with all the colors of the process going i am the pilgrim who journeys into mystery but i will never see it all for the mystery is infinite and damn if that isn't something i fucking love about marvel comics <laughs> is it just me or does in in that second page after queen never appears where you get a close-up of cloud's face does that almost kind of seem similar to eternity's face yes it does i think it normally does with cloud though at least throughout the defender series because cloud is a living nebula okay um but yeah it does i mean it has that it has that stylistic similarity to eternity's face i don't know if it's more important here uh it may be i mean cloud seems to speak for all the archetypes which is really interesting despite the queen of members herself being an embodiment of the past universe would cloud have been evolving those how does time work for in the cosmos because would they have been just evolving and growing this whole time through several cosmos? Uh, perhaps, but since they're outside of all cosmoses and time, it's really hard to say. Like, this could be a cloud from many years in the future, but, like, what do years even mean when you've already left, you know? We, we saw at the end of Defenders when they left the pages of their comic book and left the confines of their, their own multiverse. So maybe they've been out here the whole time, you know, traveling outside in the land of Nevers with the Queen of Nevers. Actually, that explains why the Queen of Nevers is a character in comic books outside of the universe. 
universe. She's just been out here the whole time, roaming the infinite lands, the mystery. I think definitely that Cloud would have been evolving. I mean, we've seen Cloud evolve. Oh, if you're two separate people who happen to be dating and, oh, you get hit by this nebula and become sentient, but you're now two people. So two people were sacrificed and now they're eternal lovers and da da da. To, yeah, no, I'm definitely a fusion. I'm evolving. I'm becoming something different. I need to figure out who I am to, okay, I know who I am and who I am is non-binary. It's not limited to one structure or one form. It is ever evolving. It is what I discover within myself and what I wish to be. And here's how I am developing. It. Yeah, agreed. Like I need it all. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what comes next. So I know we'll be going presumably to Keter, the top Sephira, you know, like the closest to God since we're ascending to Godhood, but we're going through the door to Jack Kirby's house. And I wonder if it'll just be him inside drawing these comics. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Do we have any ideas how this is going to be presented? Um, yeah, I've seen the I've seen the one above all appear before. I've seen Jack Kirby appear in Marvel Comics before. I think it's a good idea to go back and read some old Fantastic Four issues. Al Ewing, of course, has additional reading in the back of this issue, as as he seems to a lot in his comics lately, and I really have been appreciating it. So there is there is homework to do, but just from looking at it, like I'm just really appreciating the you know the Kirby crackle, the whole can, the lightning bolt striking through, all the like Doctor Strange and Steve Ditko esque Spider Man stuff and multiversal stuff going on there. It just seems to be like all of the stuff that screams this is marvel comics written all over that door and and the word next which al ewing consistently puts in defenders you saw it a few issues ago with that backwards three uh this next if you look closely at it it's got the n from fantastic fours logo the x from the original x-men logo and the e from i think avengers and the t maybe it's an old school authority it's just yeah it's cool that those are all pulled from old marvel comics i love the fact they use those letters but they didn't use like the first letter because you know usually you have if you're going to be stealing from something you use like oh yeah we're going to use the first letter from whatever this major title is and they didn't necessarily do that across the board i'm like oh that's smart right you gave us look and feel but you didn't give us this is the book we're talking about because that would have been far too predictable the x-men I, th I think is the most recognizable i mean the n looks very weird and i recognize that but the fantastic four logo has always looked really weird for me mm. like one of the first comics i read growing up was scalibur mojo mayhem the x babies they're being chased and they like go to this door that looks exactly almost like this like in its own different way so like i always love doors like this because you always know you're going to be transported somewhere off awesome. especially since we know that we're going farther than anybody has ever really gone I, I like how some of the stuff he points out are are not obscure but like maybe less known things like in the last issues we had uh you know point outs to several classic x-men backup stories which surprisingly set up a whole lot of shit like i'm like wow they put this in the classic x-men backup story wow um, so I, I love that it's bringing light to some of these things that maybe not all readers have read. Because if you read through, if you read through on MU, uh, you know, the X-Men series, you might not have picked up classic X-Men. You weren't like me in the early 90s, like, oh, this is cheap. I can read this old issue for like a dollar instead of like how much ever a back issue would have cost. We've seen a lot of these characters go on some amazing journeys. Is there a character that you have loved the journey that they've taken on in this Avengers? 
so far. Taya is so fun. I always, I love seeing Taya so much. And she, she might be my favorite character out of this whole group. But probably my second favorite character has been Tigra. I've loved the journey that she's taken, the depths that we've gotten to see in her psyche. Like just that she does long to be taken more seriously as a hero. There is more to her abilities than we know of. And that she can still be sexy and have a kid at the same time, which is amazing. Tigra's the character that I'm really most interested by their path in this story. Uh, I haven't really spent a lot of time reading her stories up to this point, so seeing her struggle as this outsider and realizing that she just wants to take care of her kid. For somebody who does not present as human, it's very human. Tiger's also my favorite in this. This is a character who, during a tarot reading, was given an entirely new and non-existing suit of the tarot to represent her. There's so much mystery going on as to why she was chosen to be part of this team. The Tiger God thing last issue was just unbelievable and really cool. And then as you said, like her her groundedness and her like, yeah, like there's all these fantasy things and this like shallow, like I could be an A-lister and everybody could love me. But in the end, she just like really needs to get back to her kid and like take care of him because she has real world concerns. And at, at the end of the day, the suspension of disbelief doesn't work. And that's why, you know, the gray fades back to black. Like she she's very clear about what her needs are and what her wants are and her desires. So I, I find her intricate and fascinating. I'm also really in love with uh, Adam Brashear in this series as the one person in this group who always tries to logic the situation. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I adore Tigra. Like, I adore them all and they've all had a huge amount of growth on these pages that for some of them, I don't... Like, for America Chavez, there was a lot of rough patches more recently where the story was getting kind of all over the place. And so, like, I to see growth from that character is so amazing. But yeah, I keep coming back to Tigra because she's she's always been painted as this, you know, sexy girl cat lady. And she's like, I'm I'm a freaking mom. I think she is one of the only parents in Marvel Universe that I've seen fight tooth and nail to just pick their kid up from daycare. It wasn't, hey, I've gotta I've gotta save the world. Sorry, kid. Don't worry, you're fine. We've got a robotic nanny for you. She's like, I, I have to pick my kid up in daycare. Like, they're gonna be pissed. I need to pick my child up. Like, I love that because it shows her as very human and and very much mom before anything else. That's mom. Mom just wants to pick up her freaking kid. And I'm like, it doesn't let you forget that she is a mother who has a regular ass life and just wants to be there for her family. I'm like... You don't get to see that much in comic books, especially especially not for women who've been labeled as sexy. Uh, the only time I've ever seen that particular aspect actually would be, I was like, kind of both Spider-Woman, like Julia Carpenter, most especially though, like back in her West Coast Avenger days. Raven, you had mentioned America Chavez. America Chavez has had a lot of stuff thrown at her on the comic recently in these recent years with her uh, finding out that she's not from the utopian parallel, Terra Powers being messed up to ha- being introduced to her sister and quickly losing her. We've seen her struggle so hard to try to find the sister that just realized this did not that long ago um throughout multiple comics she even she even visited clea to try to have clea help her find so like she's been everywhere and does she need to exhaust her search and be able to move on is that her journey <laughs>